Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to 2021, another episode of Film Chat. We are starting the year. 2020 is over, which means all of the problems associated with that year are also over. And Danny, how are you feeling now that everything that was bad about 2020 is fully behind us? Are you relieved? Oh, what a relief. Oh, I just, you know, I can't wait to do all those things. I know I can do those things. I've just chosen not to. You know, I like called you. Like, let's go to the pub. And I was actually, let's not. I just don't want to go. <laughs> but I like knowing the options there. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm just flaking out as usual. Yeah, back to flaking. My favorite activity. So uh, my girlfriend's sister got Disney Plus and some sort of free deal. So now we have it for six months. And I was like, everyone's been talking about Disney Plus for months. It's so successful. I know I'm like months behind people talking about this, but there's so little on it, despite the fact that Disney from my understanding, owns, like, the entire world in terms of content. It's only family-oriented movies. So it's, like, the good Pixar movies, the classic Disney films, and then, like, 400 weird 50s movies they made with, like, actors on contract interacting with some kind of animal, like the Million Dollar Duck or all those jokes people were making a few months ago. They don't have any movies for adults. And I was like, what? What are you paying for? I get if you've got young kids and, you know, you can't go outside. I understand... The value in it but to me i'm a grown-ass man i'm like where where's the uh where's the boobs and the blood and the swearing it's just not that that's not really what disney is famous for though is it i know that they're not famous for it but a, a large you know a substantial part of their back catalog has you know adult content or just something that isn't aimed for a five-year-old to get yeah and i was like i'm not sure what people are paying for plus they've got the money's it's gone up the subscription fee anyway oh, really? has it yeah Anyway, one of the big jewels in their crown is the live recording of the original production of Hamilton. And a mere five years later, I've seen it. I've got a take hotter than the surface of the sun. <laughs> you'd, seen it, you'd seen it before, hadn't you? I'd seen it before ages ago. And I'd listened to the album, but it's really like a different experience watching Lin-Manuel Miranda like, try and dance as well as try and sing. You know, it's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole thing. So have you, have you rewatched it now since getting Disney Plus? I've, uh, no, I just like it, but it keeps on trying to trail it. Every time you switch on the main thing, it's like a little, like 20 seconds of Hamilton. I think maybe that might have contributed to my increasingly negative opinion about it. Just seeing Limo Miranda sort of do his, like, about to cry face so many times was just driving me mad, really. Yeah. I saw it, um, quite recently as well. My girlfriend has Disney Plus, and yeah, it's definitely an interesting thing to talk about, I think. And obviously, you know, we're coming to this quite late. But as a as something that feels like a really significant cultural artifact from sort of another era now, like the tail end of the Obama era, kind of like a cultural capstone for Obama's whole presidency in a way that um, uh, is very associated, I think, with him and his most ardent admirers, particularly in America, of course. It was interesting to to watch and look back on. I remember a lot of Hamilton discourse is the thing at the time kind of came out 
in a similar-ish time that like my Twitter usage was really amping up <laughs> and Twitter was full of leftists denouncing Hamilton and saying that it's absolute shit and uh, you know for all sorts of various like cultural reasons um, and it was kind of like from people who are liable to you know often like declare like every random blockbuster to be you know fascist propaganda or whatever or just total garbage and I know that I'm a a an easily pleased man who just likes superhero movies so i thought it was possible that you know this is going to be in that category of thing where it's like uh, mass-produced entertainment maybe not the best thing but actually quite enjoyable um but i thought it was absolutely terrible <laughs> i was kind of fascinated by how little i enjoyed it i was genuinely like because i wasn't coming in with this mindset of like oh this is just for the libs you know and uh, i the uh, ideologically correct socialist well obviously i'm bound to despise this you know popcorn nonsense um it was perfectly willing to give it a go but i just thought it was quite bad in sort of every way like the music <laughs> is 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 quite sort of irritating and like the rapping is terrible there's like a couple of songs that are quite catchy um but the entire kind of concept and idea of it i think is quite bad and doesn't work it's got this um the sort of interesting thing about it is that like part of the appeal i think is this kind of uh almost self-deprecating or knowing nerdiness and awkwardness of that's right kids we're gonna rap the history here's a rap about the founding fathers discussing something on the senate floor that sounds kind of awkward it sounds like a parody of how kids are taught history or something you know it sounds like a something that would show up in a classroom and uh everyone would all the children be screwing up their like worksheets and throwing it and booing because it's just cringe inducing um and it feels like it's trying to get by sort of on the charm of its nerdy i love history quality like you know yeah, a bit like a kind of um it is i mean in a which is basically how like white like middle class rap is trying to like the what what isn't there that group called like the gentleman rappers or something or like, <laughs> uh, you know like like people who are who are too wealthy and too white to rap doing it but in this kind of clever clever i know this is nerdy basically i guess like the um lena dunham hillary rap you remember that yeah yeah when people say that Hillary needs to smile She's the strongest fucking person Couldn't even walk a mile In the heels of this woman Had to fight her whole life Defending everything she does To the left and to the right Which is obviously partly I'm sure that would not have existed without Hamilton But like that's like I know this is really embarrassing and shit But I'm actually It's also kind of cool and awesome Because rapping is so great Um, So I think it's trying to like Skate by on that kind of uh, quality as well as being you know having clever wordplay and good performances and it's very kind of soulful as well you know trying to be like a a tearjerker and you know telling a, a grand tale of a guy coming from nothing to success and how you think about historical figures and the meaning of storytelling and all this stuff um but i just don't think it overcomes the central problem that uh sort of slightly slow drumbeat raps about historical facts are just kind of cringe i i just thought it was it was just a bit cringe inducing uh and all of the pitfalls and potential bad things about it are just amplified by lin-manuel miranda's own performance yeah it's kind of he's so ill-suited to the role he's given himself i find it sort of amazing he's like he's got this really nerdy voice it's really high-pitched he, he basically sounds like morty from rick and morty <laughs> And, uh, and he's always out of breath as well. Yeah. It's like, only 19, but really... I'm going to places and yeah. I'm doing the things. It's like... He's not really a great singer. You know, and he's... At the, at the beginning as well, he's kind of this young, strapping man. Like, he knows what he wants. History's going to unfold before him. And he's kind of... He's this middle-aged guy. You know, <laughs> Alexander Hamilton. You know, the women are throwing themselves at him left and right on the stage. Everyone is rapping about how he's the most awesome dude ever. <laughs> he's like, I'm Alexander Hamilton. Like, you know, this is just sort of glee club stuff that is not, it's just not working at all. So I, I sort of found that 
bizarre. And like the guy who plays Aaron Burr, it's like quite a compelling performer, has a real stage presence. Um, but has been recruited into this nerd project, you know? I was just like, I kind of wanted all of these um, compelling and charismatic black performers to be let loose from Hamilton. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, a, what an albatross around these clearly, this clearly very gifted cast. Yeah, it's a fascinating sort of cultural product. And I think it's sort of, the fact that it's come out, you know, in 2020 and been sort of reappraised just shows how like quickly things are processed and how you know if it came out now i think it would have much more of a backlash of like why are these black people playing slave owners dancing shucking and jiving around you've got a black guy playing jefferson uh, george washington he's like a good slave owner or it's like not mentioned and that's that sort of thing i saw uh, there's a thousand really interesting think pieces you can read about this if you don't want to listen to the opinions of two middle class white guys who <laughs> just saw it but about how it's so guilty of like founding father chic and it's all rounded out and they're all like great fucking guys. Apart from Jefferson, he's the bad one. History's decided that he was too overtly pro slavery for history to forget not, that. But that's not really true in the musical. No, not at all. mentioned that he, you know, he's kind of the antagonist in, in a way, but only in, in a political, like he's on the other team or he's a rival sort of sense. Like he's not like, morally abhorrent for being a slave owner yeah and there's something very i mean extremely fucked up by the fact that like he's the sort of coded the blackest character out of the cast it's like david diggs has the most he's the one who actually raps properly like raps a lot of words very fast as opposed to like limo miranda be like hey i'm hamilton how's it going like he actually like <laughs> david diggs who's also in the soul soundtrack can actually rap and is like really good at it and it's you know it's using like black culture like r&b and rap but, you know, there were black people around during this period of history, but they were like, you know, just reappropriating them as white characters is like, that's, yeah. that's weird. Well, and like, when, not, only were... Were they, not only were they around, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. it's absolutely fundamental to the, the nation founding story that the, 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 the show is portraying. Yeah, yeah. So, absolutely. yeah, it's really fucking insane. I mean, when Jefferson, when Jefferson showed up, it, I did have this sense of like, is this is everyone kind of okay with it did nobody say during the writing process isn't it a bit weird yeah. that we have loads of historical figures who own slaves uh, and we're not really we're going to kind of mention it a bit in passing but not really and they're yeah. all played by like um black performers as these kind of heroic exciting figures as as well as a show which purports to have this strong there's a strong moral quality to it and it has this element of not whitewashing Hamilton himself. He cheats on his wife and so on. He's portrayed as this um, fallible, uh, flawed figure. So in one sense, it's kind of saying that, you know, war here's this warts and all portrayal of nonetheless fascinating and heroic freedom fighting characters while totally brushing over the, the slavery question, which does seem extraordinary really it's yeah very uh, very strange and and then yeah you would think it's not something that they could get away with now i mean but who knows coming off the back of a summer of black lives matter protests um maybe it seems particularly egregious but it's not like we didn't have trayvon martin and you know yeah, absolutely. like there was there was it's not like this wasn't a hot political issue at the time so i i don't I can't really under wrap my head around or understand how that element got through the whole conceptual process of the show or why it wasn't a problem for the show. Um, well, in um, I, I don't know if you saw this on Twitter. Someone found like this footage from like a high school production in Lin Manuel Miranda mounted of Jesus Christ Superstar set in a concentration camp, <laughs> and it's like what? It makes perfect sense. It's like the sort of ultra sincere theater studs kid who is like completely oblivious to what he's doing like he feels like he's so virtuous in his quest but it's like what are you doing lynn don't do that i do think like my favorite song in the musical was like the the king george character it's just like a sort of comic relief character and he has like a really fun song and it makes perfect sense to me that disney hired him 
to do Moana because like that's like a Disney villain song and it's like that's your you just stick to that man like cartoon fish and stuff just singing that bit that f- bit was pure tunes. yeah exactly yeah. that's his level and like when he's like striving to make some sort of deeper point about like American history it's just like it's just a bit embarrassing but like you know it'd be embarrassing if he was like 15 but you could forgive him but like he's a, he's a grown he's a grown ass man he is a bit of a he is a bit of a child in a yeah. way in, in like he's a childlike quality and I that is part of the appeal of Hamilton I think that he is quite quite a likable figure he's just seems like a nice guy he as yeah. you say he's extremely sincere you know to a fault and seems to be com- very guileless you know sort of lacking in self-awareness in a way um I remember before I saw Hamilton, like he cropped up because he's like really good friends with the McElroy brothers, the uh, trio of very online nerds um, who have a kind of a multimedia empire of podcasts and YouTube series. Um, and their whole shtick is uh, being sort of somewhat funny and sort of occasionally barbed and scathing, but it, but essentially wholly positive and, you know, all accepting and joyful. You know, they're just... They're very wholesome because they're all brothers and they all hang out. They all love each other. That's like a big part of the uh, of the Macro Brothers thing. And Limor and Miranda fits perfectly into that. And so you can't sort of hate him, but it does just seems completely sort of inappropriate, you know, what he's done. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Really. Just a really strange show. So long as well. So, so long. Yeah. Let's do like um, Cradle to Grave. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think it at a kind of structural level it suffers from that. I wasn't really sure what the, it was about, and and it just kind of meandered along. And I think the Revolutionary War is a lot more interesting than him trying to pass his tax code or something. It was like the what we were supposed to be most excited about was his advancing career in the Senate. I was like, why the fuck do I care about that? Who cares? I, I would say o- overthrowing the the shackles of you know british tyranny and founding an independent nation you know i can see that being a stirring yeah, tale yeah. you know that americans love to tell but that happens in like the first act and then he's just you know dicking about like exchanging like barbs with jefferson and i didn't, didn't really understand what, why i was supposed to care about that although um uh, maybe if you've studied a lot of american history it's just that kind of historical figures come alive <laughs> see their debates on the senate floor in rap form <laughs> maybe that maybe that is you know exciting enough in and of itself but um yeah weird 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 show and bad so i, I cannot cannot recommend hamilton maybe his new thing uh what is it called into the heights or something yeah that was his previous uh, musical before Hamilton, which became a movie yeah. and has been pushed a year because of COVID. Right, right. I mean, uh, just the very fact of it not having any conceptual correspondence to Hamilton makes it seem like it might be better if it's just about like... I just saw the trailer for the movie and it seemed to be a um, step-up style tale of like working-class inner-city people expressing themselves through dance and I'm all for that. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's going to be a, a better project for Lin Manuel. Maybe that's what he needs. That's what he needs. And his the Moana songs are great. Yeah, I mean that's you know, it. The guy can write a song. I mean, there's no there's no doubt that he that's can the write thing, a song. right? He's a, a great songwriter. The only way he would ever be cast in Hamilton is if he wrote it himself, which he did. But this has led him. He's a good songwriter. He's not a good writer of raps. This is not. This is not his wheel. He's not a rap producer. No, no, no. Know? Yeah, like, I... he's not like. Like the, this is what's mind blowing about Hamilton is it seems to be playing to his weaknesses for some reason. Like his most famous and beloved product is doing is like concentrating on the things which is not his strengths. No, but I just mean my point is that the success of Hamilton has like launched him into an acting career he's not quite built to do. Like his, his <laughs> yeah. strength, like he would never be cast in like his dark materials or Mary Poppins. So because he was in Hamilton, if he just written it and like cast somebody else, which he probably should have done you know, we wouldn't have to suffer his Lee Scoresby. He'd just be writing, you know, he should be like, he's like the Sherman Brothers or Alan Menken, you know, like, stick to that. Stick to fun songs about fish and following your dreams as a young, you know, Polynesian girl who, who wishes for, like, you know, a, a more exciting horizon. Don't be writing black people as slave owners <laughs> rapping about, like, taxes. That's obviously mad. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully there won't be a Hamilton too. I mean, he does die in, in Hamilton, so... 
And his son dies, so there's no there's no bloodline. So <laughs> Hamilton two, son of Hamilton, can't be done. Will not be will not be arriving at Broadway anytime soon. Thank God. My favorite film stars Bridget Bardo. She's the queen, but she wants to be in radio, so she starts a podcast with her friends, and the terrorists try to stop her, but she beats them in the end. Very excitingly, we got a comment from a listener, Toby Mackenzie Barnes who wrote in to say, really enjoyed the Crimbo special. My housemate has decided she wants to pick an actor and watch all the films they've appeared in. She wants somebody of a wide, mostly quality range and 15 plus movies. Any recommendations? So far, the top suggestions have been Jake Gyllenhaal and Viola Davis. And at the time, I suggested Christian Stewart and Robert Patterson for the argument that they, you know, came to prominence in Twilight, which is not a very good franchise, but it's quite enjoyable to watch, particularly the later ones when it gets increasingly nuts and they do not sound off the edges of Stephanie Meyer's insane imagination. And then subsequently, they both sort of pursued quite interesting careers in indie movies, working with interesting directors. So I think they've got quite a, you know, out of the sort of crop of young actors, they've got quite a quite a fun filmography. Uh, you get get all the way through R. Pat's filmography and then cap it off with the new Batman film when that comes out. There you go. Yeah, and you know. Yeah, I think those are interesting. Those are definitely interesting suggestions. I would say, although I haven't seen like all of Kristen Stewart's um, post Twilight movies of the two careers as I've seen them, I would say Robert Pattinson has had the superior one and is also a more interesting actor. Kristen Stewart has sort of, in some respects, honed the type of performance she gives in twilight in kind of other superior films where it's less grating um but i still think she's not as kind of interesting like as a performer um uh uh, compared with robert pattinson but yeah definitely interesting choices i would say unexpected like not where i not where my mind would immediately when prompted with that question but it's like it is it's an interesting one because I'm not sure I've heard before of deciding to do that without having a specific actor in mind. You know, I can, rather than watching a film and thinking, oh, I loved watching this person, I'd see all the moves they made, just thinking, I want to follow a career, whatever it may be, from beginning to end. It's kind of a cool project to set out upon. And I guess the way that I would approach answering it is just thinking, like, about the performers who I most enjoy just seeing them crop up and presumably have a manageable filmography, you know, that isn't excessively long. Like, I'm always happy when I see Christopher Plummer appear in a film, um, but maybe he's made too many of them for this I mean, project. He is like long. 90, so... He's 90 and he's, you know, had a long career. Um, so he might not be an appropriate answer, but he fits the bill of the type of actor who I'm always like, oh, fantastic, Christopher Plummer's here. He's going to lift this material, that twinkle... Think how much time you could spend with that twinkle if you were... Um, Who is the 25-year-old Christopher Plummer? That's the real question. Who's the twinkliest young man? <laughs> or woman? Jacob Tremblay? Uh... <laughs> Jacob Tremblay. <laughs> <laughs> I've begun a new film project. I'll be watching every film made by Jacob Tremblay before writing my BFI guide to the career of Tremblay. I've just looked him up. Uh, Christopher Plummer has 217 credits. I don't know how many of those are feature films, but I would imagine a sizable amount. That, you could do a, a curated Christopher Plummer season, I suppose. You could. I like I, one... Sorry, no, go ahead. No, you could. I, um, yeah, the way I was thinking was like, you want an actor who's fairly young or, you know, or a theatre actor who only, who only occasionally does movies. Otherwise, it just becomes a, a too large a number to deal with. So I was thinking actors like... The whole kind of A24 crop of actors, I think, are quite good. Like the sort of Riley Keoghs and Mia Vashikowskas. The You know, the Riley Keoghs, the Mia Vashikowskas, the Adam Drivers of this world, who just do, like, cool indie movies with the Safdie brothers or, you know, the, the guy did Muff of Marcy May Marlene or uh, the guy did Simon Killer. Those kind of, like, bleeding-edge New York filmmakers. They have, like, a sort of stable of actors, like Charles Abbott, like those kind of guys. But I don't know if, like, you'd get, end up with, like, a, a similar tone of movie. You'd be watching too many intense indie dramas and it'd just be a bit overwhelming. It definitely depends on what you want to get out of your of your actor season, I suppose. Like, what kind of films you enjoy watching. Whether you want to sprinkle your quality in with 
some some enjoyable nonsense. I mean, if you go with Jake Gyllenhaal and Viola Davis, you're definitely going to watch a lot of good films, but then you're also going to have to watch Suicide Squad uh, or Prince of Persia, Sands of Time, you know, which might might end up being a bit of a slog. So that you have that. I think that you could do worse than Tom Cruise here as the pick. Yeah. He's someone who I always enjoy watching on screen. I think there is there are you know occasionally you you find actors who do have that as we as we've spoken about before with Tom Cruise that's that sort of element of of intensity that sort of suggests that they are somewhat terrifying in a way you know yeah yeah a bit mad or like yeah um and i find that that element of tom cruise does enhance his performance rather than just you know always make you think he should be playing a serial killer um, which he does do quite well in Collateral, but other than that, hasn't done very much in his uh, in his career. So, uh, so I, I just feel like, you know he lifts the whole Mission Impossible franchise quite a lot, and uh, think he would be he would definitely be a fun one to do. Yeah, and but, he and yeah, he used so, to. I mean, prior to, like before, I don't know when he go mad two thousand and five. I felt like he was constantly seeking out like interesting directors to work with. You know, they, they might not be the best films in these directors' filmographies, but, you know, it's hard to think about who's worked with, like, kind of all of old and new Hollywood. Like, he made a, you know, Spielberg movie. He's been in a Bridley Scott film, a Brian De Palma film, Francis Ford Coppola film, Oliver Stone movie, Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, yeah. it's quite a, like, if you went, you know, those might not be the best d- films those directors made. So, so as, as, you're, as you're mentioning these directors, I'm just thinking like, oh God, you actually have to watch some crap with Tom Cruise. Yeah, and it's like, like Stanley <laughs> Kubrick, you know? He did Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, you have to slog your way through Oblivion, but actually, which to be fair, I haven't seen, but it looks extremely average. And um, uh, The Mummy, which uh, we saw and was dreadful. Yeah, but even The Mummy, I think, is like, it kind of goes down easy. Like, it wasn't... I was a bit bored by it, but I quite just, you know, old man fucking Tom Cruise running away from mummies. I think, you know, when the movies he produces, which has been like everything he's done this century, there's just like a certain, you know, there's always a mad stunt he did. Like in The Mummy, they actually went, you know, into zero gravity to film this bit. And it's like, well, you know, most actors would have just green screened that. So it's just a cut above, you know, if Tom Cruise wasn't in that movie, I don't think it'd be nearly as good. Yeah. So he's yeah. basically it's just like high budget jackass, isn't it? There you go. You always get to see Tom Cruise throw himself off a building or jump on a plane or in in some way risk serious injury that is only permissible within the health and safety guidelines on set because he owns the set. <laughs> because he's founded his own country in international waters, <laughs> and what he says goes. Every every single. Tom Cruise movie shot in a sound studio on an aircraft carrier in international waters, all owned by Tom Cruise, where he is king. And we will never learn the full extent of the human rights abuses that, that take place <laughs> under his rule. But the movies are very The movies are great. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great shout. Timothy Cruise. Either that or um that kid from uh Beast of the Southern Wild, Quenzano Wallace. <laughs> Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The light is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Okay, Soul. The new Disney Pixar film directed by Pete Docter, who um, is one of their more kind of high concept uh, filmmakers in their stable, previously made uh, Up, Inside Out. And Monsters, Inc., the best movie of all time. Yeah, one of their absolute all-time best. And this tells the story of Joe Gardner, voiced by Jamie Foxx, a uh, middle school music teacher in New York City, dreaming of having a great jazz career. Early on in the film... He gets the job of his dreams and then falls through a manhole uh, and dies and then is sent into the afterlife. But he doesn't want to go into the great beyond owing to 
the the gig that he just landed and tries to fight his way back and the film takes a journey through various metaphysical afterlife planes um, as well as the real world and explores the meaning of life and everything essentially here is a clip Uh, sorry, I zoned out a little back there. <laughs> Joe Gardner, where have you been? I've been uh, teaching middle school band. Uh, uh, but on the weekends, I... You got a suit? I... Uh... Get a suit, Teach. A good suit. Back here tonight, first show's at 9, sound checks at 7. We'll see how you do. Yes! woo You see that dance? That's what I'm talking about! You know what that's gonna say? Joe Gardner! <laughs> You're never gonna believe what just happened! I did it! I got the gig! So, very excited by Soul. Excited to see what Pete Doctor was gonna do next. Inside Out, one of my favorite Pixar movies, really got me in the feels. Up, famous for dealing with death in this. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Unusually straight up way. And it's clear that Pete Doctor does not shy away from big themes and concepts. And this is certainly <laughs> the most metaphysical and out there film I think Pixar has ever made. And I did spend a lot of the first half of it just being bewildered, even knowing that it was going to, it was called Soul, which sounds grand already, yeah. and was going to explore a lot of stuff. I was a bit like, I don't know what is happening. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where this is going. It is uh extremely or like it's extremely out there um and i thought it was a a real success i think it wrote a great big check uh and successfully cashed it so i thought it was excellent what did you make this danny i i really enjoyed it i've got a few like i think pete dogs basically makes the same movie again and again uh which is no bad thing like lots of directors do that in that it's sort of like a big world. There's a sort of double act. Someone's got to get home. And also the message is somebody, your your way of looking at life was wrong. You learn that it's like the Wizard of Oz or something. You had everything you needed the whole time. Which is not really a spoiler because that's like every Pixar movie. And I just think, I think it had like huge, like successful moments. And like the score by Trent Reznor and Attica Ross, Ross is amazing. And visually, it's just like a cut above anything made in the last, since Inside Out, maybe. Like, I feel like Pixar, every time Pixar released a movie, it's like, we had this technology didn't invent, it didn't exist three years ago. There was no way to do this. So we just pushed the boundaries of cinema an extra four million feet making, making this film. And some of the visuals are astounding. I think the plot is a bit, just not as elegant as previous Pixar movies. And. I think it sort of contorts into just doing like classic Pixar movie story beats in a way which was a bit limiting. Um, but that's really sort of nitpicking. It's like as as a whole, I really enjoyed it, but I just felt it just didn't quite. Unlike you, I think it only cashed like eighty percent of the check. Would be my sort of like. But I feel as like such a sort of ingrate complaining about this huge blockbuster movie dealing with all these themes, and it's like ambition is really like to be applauded. It's just. And you know, there should be more movies like Soul. So I feel like a bit of a bit of a cynic, but I did love like elements of it. The first ten minutes I thought were amazing, and really, yeah, like you, I had no idea what was going on in a way that was really exhilarating. Yeah, that's quite a rare feeling, I think, especially especially in a children's film. The the bits that are exploring the afterlife, I did not know what the next section of the film was going to be like or consist of. I didn't know where it was going to be set. 
I didn't know who the main characters were going to be. It takes quite a while before it settles into here's where we need to go and this is kind of how we're going to go about getting it. It does yeah. a lot of introducing uh, different things, different rules of the world, different realms and places and individuals. And I was wondering as I was watching it, like, will children get this? I mean, <laughs> is it too disorienting and strange? Um, but for my giant, my big old adult brain, yeah, uh, I was, I was loving it. Um, I think I can definitely see, I can, I can definitely see your, your reservations. Like it certainly is a little less elegant than some of their other work, but I just, the thing that I, there's a lot of things I really appreciated. So I'm going to, I'm going to list off a few positives here. Firstly, in terms of the animation, the thing that wowed me and the most, I think, was the design and execution of these kind of afterlife bureaucrat characters, these sort of auditor things from beyond space and time who uh, handle the the um, bureaucracy of the afterlife and the administration of it, which are all done as these two-dimensional line drawings, and they kind of continually grow extra arms and move around in impossible ways, and sort of perfectly encapsulate being these barely existing concepts rather than full people as well as being these beautifully inventive uh and, and sort of uh, virtuosic feats of animation like yeah. these, these little doodles that come to life in exciting ways and just seeing them move around and do things was continually fascinating and enjoyable for me every time they showed up on screen i was like i can't wait it's like a bit like, uh, you know, the genie from Aladdin, the way that the animators were obviously having fun with it. Yeah. You know, like d- doing all of the uh, caricatures of the people Robin Williams was impersonating and having grown different sizes, changed shape. And that's kind of what they were doing with these characters in this movie. They're also very well voice cast, that particular set of characters, I think. They all sound very distinctive. Richard Ioadi is one of them and like Alice Braga and some someone else. So another 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 person who's named yeah they, me. they've clearly like tried to um make it sort of like an every culture you know what i mean i felt like 20 years ago it'd just be a bunch of sort of like old white thespes it's like the voice of that's God. right yeah but they're sort of like all ages all races the souls yeah. have like purple eyes so it's not specific it's just a sort of every every beyond yeah. space and time person well, that was another big win, is that it didn't lapse into heaven cliches. There's no accounting angel outside the pearly gates or anything. Um, and it also didn't... It was doing something totally different Inside Out, which had this similar exploration of a metaphysical space. And Inside Out as this kind of gigantic Rube Goldberg machine, contraptions, buildings and constructions whizzing everywhere and just everything going on at once. Whereas the world of soul is very, very different looking. Um, and I thought that was a real conceptual success because it could, I feel like it could have easily done the same thing, but it's extremely distinctive. So that was really good. In terms of like what the, st- what the story is trying to do, like what the ambition of the film is, something that I like about children's films in general or children's stories or you know what they are setting out to do is... Uh, the the moral quality they're always these little morality tales and they're kind of teaching you know values to to children and one of the big successes of inside out is that the 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 value that was being expressed in that movie was a kind of unusual one and an unusually nuanced one like but it but it still did it in this way that hit all of the correct beats so you just felt like you fully understood it like if you were told to tell a children's story about how the co-mingling of happiness and sadness is the healthiest emotion and trying to be happy all the time is, yeah. it, it, it can be as bad as being depressed. You know, that would seem like a very difficult challenge, but um, Inside Out pulled it off in a, in a way that is fully within the language of a children's story, I think. Um, and it's in sharp contrast to most children's films, which rely on kind of very basic moral lessons which by implication have been internalized by the people making the film. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, I figured out that, you know, you've got to be generous and not be selfish, or you've got to love your family and not resent them, even though they make you do things or, you know, whatever things, things of that nature. And there's this kind of like paternalistic quality. 
Whereas in Soul, it's a lot more exploratory and open-ended. And the moral that it's that it's kind of getting at is, on one in one way, a very simple kind of wake up and smell the flowers kind of. If that's not that's not the phrase, but you know, like a kind yeah. of remember to appreciate the little things. You know, don't get bogged down and in your own head, and remember that the world is beautiful. Like that is kind of what it's doing on on one level. But on another level, um, it's exploring in it in a, what I felt was quite a sincere and interested and open way. Uh, about how you generate meaning in your own life and the relationship between your own skills and talents and what your purpose is or what you what what sort of purpose you want to create for yourself how you kind of navigate through life in a way that feels meaningful to you and that isn't kind of on rails uh, and how you sort of build that for yourself and the relationship between that and the gifts that you have already been given by your you know circumstances or like your natural talents and so on which is just an interesting thing to explore, I thought. And it didn't seem especially didactic about that. So I just thought, like, as with Inside Out, like, when I saw Inside Out, I came out of it imagining, like, I felt like it could prompt so many rich conversations with a child. You know, that, yeah, like, yeah. if you have kids or, or indeed adults who are struggling to process or understand their own feelings, that the film is this beautiful metaphor for how you deal with... um uh, having contradictory feelings at the same time or or of not being in control of your own emotions and in a similar way like um soul is tackling similar kind of complex insecurities and difficulties that people have in their daily lives and producing these very fluent and inventive visual metaphors for working through them like therapy tools almost um so i i just thought that was a very admirable is sort of both ambitious and just thoughtful way to go about making a children's film that it also did in a very like successful and touching way yes yeah i mean i agree with all that i think my main problem was it's like it it sort of it reminds me i think the closest comparison despite it feeling like a sort of evolution from inside out it just feels a bit more like up where they obviously figured out a very like it's very obvious which bit of the movie they figured out first, I think, with Up. It's like they had the beginning, and they had him finding the book, and then it's like he gets in some balloons, and then there's some talking dogs, and like, you know what I mean? Like, all that stuff feels a bit like they were just, this movie needs to have a plot. We can't just have, make audiences cry and then send them home after 10 minutes. And I feel like there's this second character, 22, voiced by Tina Fey, and it, and I just didn't quite care about her is that i was really invested in joe and then like all the sort of um the kind of classic pixar thing of like take a big concept and what if it worked like a sort of company even though it's it's different from the previous ones they're still like you've got to achieve these goals we've got to get these items you know that kind of element of the plot first of all i don't think it really hung together at all like the actual how souls get their meaning didn't make any sense and you know like it might be a bit spoiler to go into it, but it's like, oh, your purpose might be loving food, but no one can sense anything before a soul. So if they can't taste things, they can't feel things, how they find it, like, that makes, there's a massive contradiction. If you think about it for more than a second, it just disintegrates. And I don't know, like, I just found, like, she wasn't as well realized a character as Joe was. And it, and it kind of annoyed me a little bit that it becomes about her, like, he sacrifices himself. Oh, okay. Maybe I can't talk about it. We're going to spoilers. <laughs> and I read these kind of like these articles. There's a bit of a backlash about the way it treats race in like, you know, there's an argument made that like Pixar are very inclusive and they, you know, they really take, um, you know, depicting cultures very seriously. And the movie has a black screenwriter and they got all these black musicians in and they had a cultural, I can't remember the term, but they just made sure it was all authentic and they weren't appropriating things. But at the same time, like, it does fall into some, like, pitfalls around African-American representation in cartoons. Like, black characters are always dying and becoming other creatures in cartoons. And it does this. And then, like, I don't know. I kind of wish Tina Fey's character had been played by an African-American actress. I think it, the optics of it are, are a bit weird. I can't really go into it about talking about it, like the plot. 
But like he sort of. Sang- I know what you mean. I I know I know what you mean. Yeah, it didn't trouble me at, uh, on while I was watching it, but I'm you know I'm I'm open minded to be to be convinced otherwise. Yeah, I just felt like you know they thought of the Joe bit and then added the Tina Fey bit, and you can tell, and it doesn't quite work. I don't think. And also like the plotting, like between him like going. I don't know, I can't talk about any of this thing about spoiling it, but I felt like, <laughs> unlike, because I'm holding up to the standard, like the best Pixar movies have these like incredible like swish watch plotting where every bit of the story is doing so much and it's like a perfectly perfect thing, and Soul was just a bit woolly in the middle, in a way which I think means the ending doesn't quite land as strongly or didn't land that strongly for me. So it's a bit. I found it like a little bit frustrating thing about it because it's so close to being like an all-timer in my mind, and it just, like, just didn't miss it. So, Pete Doctor only makes either incredible movies or slightly less than incredible movies. No, I don't I don't necessarily disagree with that. I think maybe just it's, like, different aspects of the film that, you know, were more foremost in our minds, perhaps, or... Yeah. I, 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 I think that, yeah, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with, like, um, any uh, uh, criticisms around, like you know, structure or, or the elegance of the story. Although I did think it was a little better on that than Up, which I do think is somewhat disposable when it's not dealing specifically with this, the central thing about death and memory and aging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the dogs and the birds and all of the grand adventure stuff is feels very much like, you know, bright colours for children to fill the time yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, before yeah. we get back to the themes. Um, whereas in this, I, I don't know, I felt the because it was so unexpected and I did not know what the next sequence of the film was going to be in any way that that somewhat compensated for um, what I agree is like the elements that didn't receive exactly the same care, I guess like, you know, the best possible story is one in which the functional elements are married so perfectly to, you know, the, the meaning and the, you know, the soulful elements for want of a better word that you don't notice you know, everything is just working perfect harmony, whereas um, sometimes you can certainly see the seams, the problem solving, you know, is perhaps too evident. Yeah. Having said that, the movie's successes far outweigh these weaknesses. And when it's like firing on all cylinders, it's pretty spectacular. So I wouldn't want you to leave listening to me thinking I didn't really enjoy it because I did. And I feel like, yeah, to maybe reiterate my point, I'm sort of complaining about it for just like not quite succeeding. And it's like incredibly admirable ambition to be this sort of groundbreaking metaphysical movie for kids, you know? It's like, oh, nice try, Pixar. Next time, just stick to making a film about a talking dog, you know, like... <laughs> just stick to Cars 5. Yeah, just... I just want to watch another... I want to watch a thing where, like, things that don't normally talk like humans talk like humans, okay? But, like, more... Something I can understand, like a, like a lamp or, a, like, a, a mug. <laughs> yeah, why haven't they made the Pixar lamp film? Well, they did, famously. That was, like, the short that, like, got them the funding. No, the film. The full film. <laughs> the full film. The feature film. That would be the last film they make. Round all out. Yeah, they don't want to make any of those old man movies. After ten, Pixar's done. Yeah. They've made ten. They've easily they've made, made ten. They've made, like, twenty. <laughs> they've made, like, twenty. <laughs> yes. So, go see it. In your house, I say that like you can go. Go, go see it. Where your laptop is located. Go what you know. Butcher Soul Hamilton double bill. Sam, how invested are you in the Lethal Weapon franchise? Extr- well, I've never seen one. I've, ne- I've never seen one. Okay, well, to bring up to speed, the Lethal Weapon franchise started in the late 80s, written by Shane Black and directed by Richard Donner, who'd previously made The Omen and uh, the Superman movies. And it was a huge hit where Mel Gibson was a crazy maverick cop. In the first movie, he's suicidal and he's partnered with a reliable older black a police captain played by Danny Glover and you know they uh, start off as a bit adversarial by the end of the best of friends they you know solve some crimes and it launched a franchise which 
you know, there's Leaf Weapon 2, there's Leaf Weapon 3, there's Leaf Weapon 4 in 998. They're like, when's there going to be a new Leaf of Weapon? It's 22 years later. The director, Richard Donner, is now 90 years old. Mel Gibson is guilty of hate speech. Everyone is incredible. <laughs> He's in his 60s. Donald's in his 70s. But Richard, this 90-year-old director, is like, we're coming back for one more movie. Leave Weapon 5. It's going to happen. How excited are you on a, on a scale from 1, one to 10? Well, I wasn't before you started talking, but now I can't wait. There's so many funny things about this story. First of all, just the idea that like a 90-year-old man is directing a massive Hollywood picture. He says it's going to be his last film. <laughs> I mean, bold claim. Um, it would be... It, the, the headline grabber would be, this won't be my last film. <laughs> <laughs> this is my 10th to last film, <laughs> says incredibly competent director Richard Donner. This is the first in a 10-part <laughs> series of Lethal Weapon sequels I will be making while alive. I will, Lethal Weapon 14 will be my last film. <laughs> um, yeah, so that itself is very funny. But it's also like, what is the appetite for this franchise, given it's been so long since the previous one? They've now, and the famous line you know, from the movies is, I'm too old for this shit. And now, you know, it's like the Who singing My Generation. It's just become bitterly ironic. There's Even in the last movie, they're really pushing it. They were like close to retirement. And so now they're well past the age of retirement. They're really old. How Also, I think just audiences' relationship to like cop movies has changed a bit. Like, I'm not sure if you, it's not the 90s anymore. You can't just have like the good guy cops blowing up the South African drug dealers or whatever. It just feels, that feels quite dated. And you know, added to the problems is just the fact that Mel Gibson is clearly an insane, like, bigot. Do you want to see him as a maverick cop, like, killing people when, like, he's just a man full of hate? You know, it's just... How entertaining can that be? Also, shouldn't they all be shielding? Are they allowed to be <laughs> Is it going to be shot over Zoom? <laughs> How will, will Richard will Richard Donner have to remain within a plastic bubble throughout, like on set? Like, how can they safely make the film? <laughs> well, it's not shooting right away. I think they're going to wait till they can, you know, shoot it without possibly killing the director. They don't have that much time, though, do they? They better. <laughs> We're going to need this pandemic to be over with quickly. <laughs> Richard Donner, race against time and illness. <laughs> It's ambitious, to say the least. Another thing that's perhaps uh, not in the movie's favour is that Shane Black isn't involved at all. Having started the he's franchise... He's not old enough. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not old, old enough. enough. He wrote... His, famously, he, his script for Leap Weapon 2, which is like a great, you know, what-if of cinema. I'm not sure if I might be overstating it there, but like it was a much cooler movie where Mel Gibson's character died and the producers were like, no, this can't happen, and just they rewrote it completely. And then a few years back... Shane Black kind of pitched it, like him coming back to the franchise and Leap Weapon 5, but he's not involved with this current version of the sequel. So, you know, as a Shane Black fan, I'd be like, oh, maybe if he's involved, there'd be quips and stuff. I'd still be a bit weird because Mel Gibson is, I can't really watch him on screen. I feel like he's he's too tainted, like his personal life is too insane for it to like not be a, something you're thinking about when you're watching him on screen. Like he's probably just thinking about murdering a black person because his wife's boobs are too big or whatever, like... Yeah, he he shouldn't be making films at all. It's quite clear that he should not be part of uh, Hollywood. So yeah, most anticipated film 2022. Leave Weapon 5 for me. I've decided. Don't know, what else is, five. don't know what else is coming out that year. Certainly curious about the production of Lethal Weapon 5. How that? <laughs> I'm just I, thinking... I would like to see a documentary about the making of Lethal Weapon 5 more than the film itself. <laughs> you know what? I definitely would like to just hear the director's commentary of a 90-year-old man. Just... Something adorable I just want to read the, the daily blog about, you know, what's going on on the production. <laughs> just want to follow it as it's happening. That I would enjoy. Yeah. If it's bad, you could the review could be, uh, they're too old and it's shit. Nice. That'd be I good. Like that. I think How old the first is Danny Glover now? He was in um, Sorry to Bother You and he seemed very old. Uh, let me have a little look here. Always getting the research right. He's 74. 74. But he always acts like... I remember um, 
Jordan Peele doing a really good impression of like Danny Glover where he's like just incredibly old and jowly like even in the first Leaf Weapon movie it always annoyed him that like you know they the one thing African American communities have is like cool black cops is like a sort of positive trope but like even Leaf Weapon he's like this like lame like oh, I'm old I'm old it's like in the first movie he's like you know in his 40s it's like why are they doing, doing this why are they making the, the young crazy racist the cool guy and the the cool black guy, the old curmudgeonly one. Yeah. He's he's also like, he's developed the um, Nick Nolte voice of uh, sounding like all but one of his vocal cords <laughs> has snapped and he can just rasp out words now. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's struggling. He sounds like a Bob Dylan album now. But it's still, I mean, it's still a cool voice, but you know. I just, we just have to hope that he can the, the the mics can still pick him up on Lethal Weapon Five. Yeah, let's hope they can hear the director. And they can hear one of the leading men, <laughs> and that the COVID doesn't the kill them. Has the cognitive capacity and uh, physical strength to <laughs> <laughs> uh, to make it through production, and that the actors also uh, are equal to the task. Yesterday I bumped into Imelda Staunton She was up with her dog and we got talking I asked her what she does when she isn't acting She said she likes podcasts for relaxing Imelda, when you're in the mood What do you listen to? She said I listen to one podcast I listen to one podcast All the other ones can kiss my asses I listen to one podcast Film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat, film chat Wild Mountain Time. You may have heard of this from its hilarious trailer, which made everyone on Twitter laugh about a month ago. This is from Pulitzer Prize winning writer John Patrick Shanley, who previously had great success with Doubt, his play, which became a movie. He's now become a filmmaker in his own right, and he's adapted his own play, Outside Malinga, into Wild Mountain Time, the plot in Ireland, the most Irish island has ever looked on screen. Uh, there's a young, sexy man played by Jamie Norton. He's Anthony, Anthony Riley, and he lives on a farm with his dad, Christopher Walken. Uh, Jamie Norton is playing himself. Playing himself, Christopher Walken, playing Tony Riley. Everyone's doing an Irish accent, even Jamie Dornan, who is Irish, but from the wrong part of Ireland, I think, from where this is supposed to be set. Presumably outside Malinga. Well, he's Northern Irish, I think. That's it, that's it. So it's like a sort of rom-com fable he grows up on a farm with his dad and the neighboring farm uh there is a beautiful woman called rosemary played by emily blunt and these two idiots are clearly meant for each other but for various plot machinations they don't get together and lots of very irish things happen and john ham plays a sort of american irish relative who uh, chris walken might leave the farm to family you know there's deaths, there's loves, there's people falling over, there's lots of accents, there's shots of wildlife. It's the greenest green you'll ever see. It's just 120% island, isn't it? Here's, here's a clip. Are you in love with Anthony? It's more than love. Don't be. Now go while your damn gates are open. No, I'm not, I'm not done with you. He's not normal. I don't care. He'll never marry. Well, then neither will I, and he will be in his house, and I'll be in mine. Rosemary! Be quick, I need to pee. And you'd sell to a yank, would you? He's a Riley. He's a yank. You're trespassing now. Drop this plot, or I'll kill you. Would you have the place go on auction? Anthony will never marry. Oh, he will. Wake up! Look to yourself. No, and if it comes to that, I'll freeze my eggs. You'll what? I'll freeze my eggs. If he's slow, I'll wait. You should freeze your whole body if you're waiting for that one. I believe he will come to me. I need to settle. Yeah, despite seeing this movie, I was struggling to really recall what happened. <laughs> um, it's all about the mood, though, isn't it's it? It's all about the mood. It's, it's all about the mood. It's all, it's all farm animals, no broadband. You know, uh, there's just, there's like an old stone wall, but there's no uh, cappuccinos. You know, like... That's, sure. that's what it, that's what it's all about. It's all about that that fiddle soundtrack that's always going on. Yeah, yes. it's 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 as kind of laughable as the trailer kind of suggested that it would be, but more boring because it's much longer than a trailer. Yeah, it's based on a play, and I think once you know that, it makes perfect sense because there's these long dialogue scenes 
which I think are supposed to be entertaining in and of themselves. The the the, uh, the writer director John Patrick Shanley is like sort of he's a classic sort of Irish American where he's obviously not spent that much time in Ireland but feels some sort of deep connection to it because of his family line and it like leans into the most sort of Irish stereotypes it's quite I always find it kind of funny because there's like there's two Irish stereotypes one is that everyone in Ireland is like an idiot and the other one is that everyone in Ireland is like sort of genius romantic poet it's the country of Oscar Wilde and Beckett and James Joyce and everyone has the gift of the Blarney and just has this amazing lyrical way of talking so they're both like idiots and also you know the world's best playwrights and it sort of leans into all those cliches so everyone is sort of like falling down and not understanding stuff but also can express themselves not eloquently but in a sort of pseudo i don't i don't know how to describe it pseudo irishness everyone well, they, uh, they, you've got the stars they may, not, and they may not have the fancy degrees and the big no. education in the city of some of you know the the snob folk but they have a connection to the soil that grants them this only <laughs> wisdom and That's it. closer access to truth and meaning than people who just swish about between skyscrapers closing business deals. They know what's really important. Yeah. You know, goats and whatnot. Yeah, it's it's quite I don't think it's quite entertaining enough to be worth seeing in a way. Like we watched a you know, a kind of group hate watch and I had a couple of beers and it was fine. And there's definitely like a sort of third act revelation, which is quite, I think it's not a spoiler to say there's like a sort of a weird plot twist at the end. I might keep you watching it because otherwise if that didn't happen, the whole movie would have been a complete write off. But it had a memorably odd conclusion, which was like, you know what? That was, it had a last minute move, which put it, pushed it up another 10%, but it still wouldn't make it actually worth watching. Yeah. The last uh, act revelation was a kind of glimpse at the film we could have been watching, which would just have been truly ridiculous all the way through and had us in stitches. But we had to spend way, way too much time in this plodding family drama where there wasn't enough going on to like before we got to the fun of the the final act nonsense. I think kind of like other than its absurd caricaturing of Ireland. One of the problems that it has is it's unable to decide on its tone and it almost felt like in order to get it funded, someone told him to crank up the um, uh, the saccharine Irishness of it or something, which is that I think like that mix of their fools and their wise or whatever, the wise fool thing, um, the way that that's expressed tonally is that there is a lot of slapstick comedy and then like a lot of long intense dramatic family scenes which just don't marry whatsoever so the same person who's laughing at jamie dornan falling out of a boat is like not going to be in the mood then to engage like you know shed tears as uh he sits with his dying father you know like they're just yeah. don't, they don't hang together really i mean it is possible to do films which are silly at one moment and then deeply serious the next but this has not succeeded in navigating that issue ah uh, tis a shame yes it is yes tis yes tis is the same yeah not a recommendation for wild mountain time a film that uh whoever's listening to this probably was not going to seek out and now you don't have to don't waste your time i think that that brings us to the end of the show next week we'll be reviewing possibly wonder woman if we can watch it, I forget. It feels like the UK release changes constantly. And maybe something else. Maybe something else. Would like to see Wonder Woman 1984. Um, heard it's quite bad in quite interesting ways. So I'm curious, curious about that. And yeah, we'll be back next time. Let's do it. The good news is I don't know if this movie is about accents. I think it's just about, you know, um, so much more than that. And and, and 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 I think this really was a celebration of Ireland and the Irish and how extraordinary they are as people. I certainly got to experience that when we were making it. And so I agree with you. I think when people make a film about London or you've got people doing a British accent, I think I'm probably going to be much tougher on it. So... I think we did just, we knew it was coming for us, so we kind of just had to like laugh it off, because I think, um, I think we just made this film with so much good intention and so much love, and 
you just have to stand by that. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.